podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. We've got some exciting chat coming up to Jane. What are we speaking about? Well, today we are talking about innovation. And specifically, we're talking about uh, the role of failure, which is one of my favorite subjects. And we're talking to Ronnie retta Pullman from the University of Nebraska, who's an expert in this stuff. Yeah, it's exciting. We've got a great conversation lined up. She brings a, a wealth of really interesting knowledge around the space of creativity and innovation. And I think we'll have a great chat. Hello. So here we are in the main body of this podcast. And this is the first of three episodes we're doing in the summer of 2012, where we're focusing on innovation. And today we're going to be looking at innovation and we're going to be exploring the role of failure and psychological safety in relation to innovation. We're lucky to have an excellent guest with us today. Um, actually, going to be a guest for all three of these episodes. We've got Ronnie ryder Palman. Uh, and before we get into the conversation, would you be able to introduce yourself and say a little bit about yourself and your background uh, to the audience? Absolutely. Um, so I am a professor of organizational psychology at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. I am also the director of our graduate program. We have a master's and a PhD, and I've been studying creativity and innovation for the last 30 years. That's excellent. And, and I'm sure you're going to bring a wealth of knowledge to this with, with that background. Um, before we get into some of the details, can we just start with a, a really simple question? So what is it that innovation really means to you? What is innovation? That's a great question. Um, and there's actually a debate in the literature on the similarities and differences between creativity and innovation. Um, the semi-consensus, it's not a full consensus, is that creativity refers to the early stages where people think about the problem and come up with ideas, whereas innovation relates to the um, <clears throat> narrowing down of the ideas, choosing one or two, uh, and implementing those ideas in the organization. Uh, because I'm interested in the entire gamut, I just talk about creativity and innovation as, as one thing. Yeah, that's cool. And and I'd never really thought of them being linked together so much. And it's something we might explore a little bit later. But I normally think of creativity being, you know, in the artistic space and, and in those other domains as opposed to the work-related space. But clearly it feels to you as if it's all drawn together in one process. Absolutely. Um, so anytime you come up with a new idea for solving a problem, whether it's at work whether it's raising your children and coming up, you know, how am I going to entertain them today when we're locked in? Um, you know, uh, dealing with friends, cooking a new dish, all of those are, are can be creative activities. Yeah, and it's really liberating to think about it that way. It's, it's quite positive to think about that creativity in that space, I think. Um, when, when we're, you know, drilling into this conversation today, we're really looking at the role, I guess, of, of failure and, and how we deal with failure ourselves and our teams. Um, in relation to that creativity and innovation process. So when we think about failure in the workplace, what kind of things constitute failure and, and what is failure at work, do you think? Um, so it, it's a tough question for me because for me, for me, I don't see a whole lot of failure, right? I see learning opportunities. Uh, 
The problem is that many organizational leaders, if things don't work out the way they expected, um, it is a failure. Um, the issue and why this is important with creativity is because anytime we have a new product or a new process, we haven't tried it before. We don't know if it works. Therefore, the chance of it not being successful and therefore labeled a failure are fairly high. If we if view it as a failure, people don't like to fail. So I'm not going to try something new because it may not be successful. My boss will label it a failure and it will taint me. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess that's that's a difficult part of an organizational culture, isn't it? Is to, to understand that relationship between failure and the individual and efforts to do new things. Um, in your experience working with organizations, does anybody ever get the right answer for the first time around? Does anyone do new things and, and just have it work out normally, instantly? Sometimes, sometimes it, it happens. Uh, it's rare. A, a lot of the work that we do is, is um, iterative. Uh, in in nature, where we try something, it doesn't work. We make a fix. We try it again. We see what pieces don't work. We try it again, um, and and that's a very typical approach. Um, you see it in things uh, like rapid prototyping, or when we talk about agile. Uh, that's that's exactly what they're dealing with. Is this notion that uh, it's not going to be right the first time around? Um, occasionally people are lucky, teams are lucky, and, and they get it right. Uh, but most of the time, it either doesn't work or, um, you know, if we're lucky, we learn from the experience, we fix things, we get it better the next time. Uh, on a slightly side conversation about this, as, as you've been speaking, I've just been thinking a little bit about how we plan and allocate our time in organizations. When, when you're working with organizations or exploring the way that they're practically going about their day-to-day, processes. Do you think they build in time sufficiently for, for what you're describing as learning opportunities or that iterative process or, or overcoming when things don't work the first time? Or, or do you think we make incorrect assumptions about how long processes take and how, how close we get to correct solutions? I don't know if we make assumptions, incorrect assumptions. Uh, the way organizations operate uh, right now is that they they do not allow for time. One of the things we do know uh, from the research is that uh, developing creative ideas takes time. Uh, not just because we have to engage in this trial and error, but also because we have to come up with new ideas that is more effortful, that's more time consuming than doing what we've done before. Uh, we need to think about problems from a new perspective. We need to try to combine new things together uh, those are effortful activities. And organizations, for the most part, don't build in time for those activities. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for me to work with an organization. They come to me and they say, we want to improve creativity and innovation. But then when I start to talk about providing employees with more time to think, no, we have fires that need to put out. They have things they need to do. Uh, if you're too busy doing the day-to-day routine activities, you're not going to be able to have that time to think or reframe. And if everything is urgent, there's no margin for error. There's no time to try something, not succeed, and try again. 
Yeah. And and I guess, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, it, it feels to me like you can't probably schedule in a 30-minute window to have space for that type of creative thinking. Does it take time to get into to those sort of spaces to think creatively? Or how, does it, how do you see that working? Um, so we know that when people start thinking deeply, um, it does take time to get into it. And disruptions are... Uh, difficult and uh, make it harder to get back into uh, the thought process. Um, so that that is an issue. Um, and actually, relatedly, I just saw a, a paper that suggested that uh, parents working from home right now with the uh, pandemic, uh, the average time between kids interrupting them is less than five minutes. Wow. Wow, that's hardly anything. It must be um, hard to focus on anything without that interruption. You can only do shallow tasks, I guess. Um, a slight side question again. So, so where people have tried to create something and not achieved the initial objective or goal that they've been set, do you ever see examples of where those efforts result in something else and organizations kind of pivot, to use a popular modern phrase, or, or move into new areas? I mean, is there tangential success through these sort of development processes? Absolutely. Uh, probably the best example is is uh, Post-it notes. Um, so <clears throat> 3M that developed the Post-it notes is known for their um, support of creativity and innovation. And they, one of the things they do, speaking of time, is provide their uh, professionals with the task of spending about 20% of their week on unrelated tasks where they develop new ideas. So they provide them with time to think creatively. And one of their chemists wanted to develop a really strong glue. Um, and that resulted in the post-its, which is the exact opposite of a strong glue. I was going to say. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but what happened was that this glue was developed, and initially it was viewed as not successful. But over a period of time, people found uses for it. And as a result, it became one of the most successful products of this company. So I think there's, I'm really interested in this because one of the conversations I had recently around uh, creativity and failure and particularly innovation was where I was talking to a couple of organizations that have effectively tried to separate the jobs out for who's responsible for coming up with the better ways to do things or how they would refer to it development versus the delivery team. And there's, there's a, using your post-it example, they, the way they think is delivery team are there to get the job done, not to innovate. And then there's a separate de development team. But the way you're talking about something like the post-it, that would never work because the people that would execute the ideas are the people that are going to spot the opportunities for maybe creating something different or looking at what's happening in real time and going, hang on, this isn't working here, but it might help us somewhere else. So do you have a view on, on organizations that try and sort of allocate innovation to specific job roles and whether that's possible? Well, I'm a great believer in, in uh, interdisciplinary teams, right? So I could also see, you know, R&D folks sitting there not knowing what production teams in the factory are dealing with, coming up with fantastic ideas of doing something that are not really possible to translate 
in a meaningful way to production. If we don't have people from production sitting in the room discussing it, they wouldn't know. So I think there's importance for expertise and putting together a team of experts from different perspectives, whether it's, you know, the marketing person, the production person, and the R&D person, they all have to be in the room together. Yeah. And it's interesting looking at it that different, that different way around of both having the, what would be traditionally termed innovative jobs with production and production with those innovative jobs, because actually what you say is exactly true. And a lot of our listeners will, will recognize this, where they work in delivery, they're presented with ideas, options, projects to develop. And they're like, well, you can't do that for X, Y, and Z reason. We know that that's our evidence. So it sounds to me like, um, failure is really important, almost essential in order to innovate and actually execute the outputs of those innovations well. But, but consistently we hear that it's really tough and consistently when we talk to people, they find it really difficult. Why do you think it is so difficult to, um, to fail and move forward and learn from it beyond just seeing it as a failure? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, right? So psychologically, as a species, we do not like to not do well, right? We shy away from things that we're not successful at. Um, we've been taught and learned that this is not appropriate, right? We all want to be successful. We all want to do well. We get praise when we do well, and we get negative feedback when we fail. So we have this built-in mechanism that makes us shy away from failure. And that's part of the reason why companies that have been successful in terms of their innovation have moved away from that label of failure uh, because it has those negative connotations. They try to look at these as learning opportunities and they very intentionally focus on what can we learn? How can we improve? What can we do better next time? And they're, and they move away from labeling uh, these as failures on the one hand, and also from having the negative consequences associated with it. And there's, there's quite a move, certainly in the sort of IT sector, the technology software service sector, of trying to bring products that aren't finished to market quite often to test them out so that they've effectively committed less resources to finding out if their innovation is working or if their ideas are working. Do you think, do you think that is playing a part in helping them? Because if you, what, the, what, we, what we've seen where failure has been like really damaging to organizations is where they've committed huge amounts of resources, people and money to projects they think are going to work at the first go. And then when they don't, uh, that team is seen to have failed the entire organization. So do you think there's a there's a balance that needs to be struck about how people sort of invest in their ideas and their innovation before they sort of trial them? Uh, th that's part of it, right? Or just understanding from the organization that we're committing resources with the understanding that some of these projects are not going to be successful and some of them will, and we can't tell ahead of time. We just don't know, right? If, if we knew ahead of time, it wouldn't be creative um, because we would have all the knowledge. Yeah. And the way, I mean, it's really interesting you talk about it as investment and like 
you know, you think about that is absolutely accepted when we think about financial investments, right? We absolutely accept that people who manage our money or if we're doing it ourselves will use all the information they've got to make good choices. And some of those choices will pay off and some won't. And yet somehow when you go into organizations and they've put all this time and effort into things, they are they seem almost broken when it it doesn't work that first and I'm first time and I'm I'm saying it doesn't work that first time because all too often I work with organizations and they give up after the first go because they're like, well, it failed. It totally failed, rather than coming back and iterating and trying differently. Is that do you see is that get are people getting better at that? Are they getting better at innovating and tweaking and rather than doing these big giant change project programs? Um, I, th- I think to some extent they are. I think there's a big push and a better, much better understanding of the process today than there was before. On the other hand, there's also a push to be more lean, more efficient, uh, less resource intensive. Um, and, you know, if, if you look at the workforce currently, um, we don't have you know, the workforce is very lean. We have just enough people to get the job done and sometimes not even that. And if that's the case, again, everybody's running around dealing with the here and now. There's no time to think about the future and to develop new products and new ideas. Yeah. And that that raises, I guess, an interesting question, which is, you know, some of those things that you're talking about allude to an organizational, certain type of organizational culture. So what what role do you think uh, the organizational culture and the leadership play in creating an environment that is conducive to innovation? Oh, it, the leadership—the uh, role of leadership in organizational culture is, is huge, frankly. Um, there, there is this concept of uh, creati- culture for creativity or culture for innovation that received a lot of attention in the literature. Um, leadership is a big part of it because they shape the culture. Um, and part of that culture is the acceptance of the risk that comes with innovation of, uh, not blaming people when, in teams when, um, products or ideas are not successful, of learning from failure or from lack of success and improving for the next time. So those are big markers of a creativity culture. And how do we how do we create those cultures that are um I guess uh kind and, and sort of respectful and, and aren't so judgmental about failure without losing some of the drive to get better at things? Can you balance both of those at the same time? Well if you look at creative individuals, they balance both, right? Creative individuals strive for success and want to be successful and innovate while at the same time realizing that failure or lack of success is part of the process. It's a normal part of the process. You know, think about, even if you think about the art, how many drafts do authors go through before that book is sent to the publisher? Um, If we look at works of great painters, we could see that they've had multiple, you know, pencil and charcoal uh, drawings of what they wanted to paint before they actually painted. Um, That's normal. That's part of the process. It doesn't mean that you do not want to be successful. You still have the drive. It's because you want to be successful that you take the time. So one of the things that 
leaders need to understand, and going back to your question about how do we create a culture like that, I think leadership has a lot to do with that. Um, le- you know, when, when a, a product fails or a team do- is not successful in, in what they're achieving, does the leader blame the team? Do they look for scapegoats? Do people get fired? Or are are we talk are we sitting there and talking and doing basically a, a what we call a debrief where we're going okay what went well what didn't go well and what can we learn from it that will make it better the next time whether it's this particular product or even if we're giving up this product can we learn something from this that will help us with the next product with the next idea and in teams like that when when you can get to that stage where you're focused on on um i guess for future and learning and continuing to develop um, what kind of role does, uh, I guess, power within leadership have? Uh, does, does that work in, in teams where you've got maybe very hierarchical cultures and strong leadership, or, or does it need to be more uh, egalitarian? Does that sort of power distance and then power dynamic influence the ability of a team to innovate? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure we have a ton of research that compares the two. Mm-hmm. Um I think if you have a lot of power distance, the role of the leader becomes more pronounced. So everybody's going to follow what the tone of the leader. If it's more egalitarian, then obviously other people will have an influence as well. What we're finding from creative teams typically is that um, they have multiple experts. And when you have experts, they become the de facto leader in their area of expertise. So if, for example, I've been doing work with uh, medical professionals, well, when it comes to the teamwork piece, I'm the expert. So if something is not successful or we need to learn from it, I'm the leader when we talk about teams. I know nothing about medicine. So I sit and listen. So we share the leadership function. And you're more likely to see that in successful creative teams. That's interesting. And and do you find that the teams that are successful, um, that they have uh, human connections? Does it take time to, to create these teams? Do people need to know each other? Do they need to have some of that softer, more human relationship? Or is it is it able to create this in a more transactional, very work-focused environment? Or do you need a bit of both? Yeah, uh, the the research is is pretty clear on this. Um, You know, one of the big factors in uh, taking and learning from failure is the ability to uh, honestly discuss um, any of the issues that come up. And in order to do that, you need to feel comfortable with your teammates. You need to know that if, if you didn't do something correctly, People were not going to blame you, that uh, that they will be respectful. Um, and, and we call that process psychological safety. People need to be need to feel safe in that environment. So absolutely those connections, those human connections are critically important. So I've got a question for you. I mean, we're here as um, a group of interested people discussing what you know, organizations can do to get better at creativity and innovation and overcoming failure and things like that. Do you think this is a type of conversation that teams have amongst themselves? Do you, do you think people are in organizations aware that this is an, an area to explore and think about and, and talk about it and explore it themselves? Or do you think people sort of march through life without really stepping back and reflecting on this as a, as a 
as an avenue of thought and exploration? You know, I, I think we have a little bit of both. I think some people are aware and some organizations and teams are more aware than others. And in some places, they're not. Uh, again, these are not easy, always easy conversations to have. Yeah. Um, and so I think in some cases, even if people are aware and want to have the conversation, they feel uncomfortable doing it. If you have, let's say, dominant, strong teammates that are not accepting, um, they're not going to have those conversations. And and that those dynamics that exist within teams, um, do you think if people, where people have started to understand the importance of this, do you think that in itself can help teams change how they react to each other and how they understand? Um, sometimes, you know, the very knowledge that this might help uh, develop their capabilities and their their ability to deliver um, in itself helps. Does that does that knowledge of of this concept really help them sort of improve, or is it more that the research just notes that where it exists, then it helps teams move forward? No, we we definitely know that the knowledge helps improve. Um, there is evidence that training, team training, um, works, uh, and we can help teams become better, uh, and, and have those conversations, have those discussions, uh, uh, in a more meaningful way. And uh, as always, the, the first step is understanding that you're not where you need to be. So that's a really positive uh, point, I think, for a lot of our listeners who work in uh, smaller organizations or are running their own teams, which is that, you know, you can get better at this stuff with some training and some knowledge and some support. Um, and that it's not, you know, they're not stuck where they are given their team if their team doesn't have it at the moment, which is pretty, pretty great. Uh, because a lot of the stuff that we talk about, there isn't great evidence that learning and developing necessarily changes it. Um, but as individuals on our own, people listening right now, what can they do, do you think, to get better at failing, if you like? Um, first of all, you have to try, right? There's no failure if you don't try. Um, so, and, and it requires courage. And um, I think to me, the first thing is to try to assess where you're at relative to the team and what are your reactions when things don't go well, right? These are things you can control. Do you blame people? Do you get mad? Or do you take the approach of what can we learn from this? Um, and if you can try to control your own reactions, emotional reactions to, to those situations, that can shift the, the, the team environment. And now if you put together a team of people that are all paying attention to this, you've created a team where you have psychological safety. Yeah, sorry. I'm, the reason I'm smart, I'm, I'm, you probably, you definitely can't see me, but I've got a smile on my face. And the reason <laughs> I've got a smile on the face is because I was just, I was just reflecting to myself both on my own career and some of the clients that I work with and about how often we end up talking about having to park your ego and having to get over it really quickly because that helps everybody. And I think with failure in particular, if you can somehow find a way to disassociate the failure with your own opinion of yourself and your ability to to be effective at work, I think it's a really powerful thing, but it's quite hard to do. I don't know, James, what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I very much agree. And actually, I was smiling to myself when you were speaking about that because so many of the conversations that we have about different domains of work and, and our, I guess, social interactions with others often at some point mention the benefits of self-awareness and, and developing that awareness that you have some influence over how you think, how you feel, how you um, choose to interact. And if you get to a stage where people can start to step back and to appreciate that and watch um, watch themselves sort of in this social environment, it makes it easier for them to, to shape those experiences that they have and the experiences that others have. When, when, when you work on this type of uh, improvement to creativity and innovation, do you, do you focus on with your clients, things like self-awareness at all? How does that work within your, your work? Um, in some cases, absolutely. I think um, both in terms of creativity and in terms of team processes, self-awareness is really critical. Um, as you started the conversation, you said, oh, I didn't think about creativity as something you could do in business. That is a common conversation, That a place where I have to start is the realization that people, Everybody can be creative and you can be creative in domains that we typically don't associate with creativity. Um, I can't train you to be more creative if you believe you cannot be creative at all or that creativity has no place in business. Um, So that's part of that self-awareness process that needs to happen, that uh, the, the realization that this is possible. Um, And the same thing happens within the team environment. So I've got I've got one more question, and then we're we're kind of running out of time on this episode. Um, if we were to think about, say, leaders in small to medium organizations or um, people leading you know medium sized teams that were looking to to sort of create the environments that support thinking about failure as learning opportunities and create that safety, have you got any any thoughts on what they could do to to create those those environments? Any simple things they could do? Yeah, I think uh, modeling the appropriate behavior is really important. That is, again, you need to be the first in line to treat the the failure as a learning opportunity. And if you see other people on the team treating it differently, or when there are occasions where people belittle ideas and so forth, you need to intervene as, as the leader, even if the idea is silly it may lead to a good idea. So, you know, one of the first rules of brainstorming is that, you know, you just spew out ideas because you never know. And at that point, um, your job as the leader is to make sure that everybody on the team understands that it's okay to have silly ideas. We don't have to use them. But if you start to self-censor and not present those ideas, we may miss a great idea that's hidden among them. So it's modeling and providing the direction to the team on, on how it's appropriate to behave. Well, that sounds like a really good piece of advice. And I think we're going to end this episode there because we've got a few more to get through on innovation. Um, and I think we've covered some really great content. So um, just before we finish up, just to make sure that we've covered it here, um, is there anything people can do to find out a bit more about you and, and this topic and some of the work that you've done on it? Absolutely. Um, feel free to connect with me. Email is probably the best bet. I have a, a, a longer email address. I'm not sure what the best way to provide it to people. Um, if we can, we'll uh, share it. We can share it with um, some stuff at some point. Yeah, that'd be good. Great. 
Okay. Well, that's excellent. Um, And thank you very much. It was an excellent conversation. Thank you. I enjoyed it. So that was our conversation with Ronnie. I think we covered some really good stuff there. And and, and she brings such a wealth of knowledge to this this sort of idea of innovation and and role of failure or or sort of learning from our mistakes uh, in that. Um, Jane, did you have any specific takeaways that you wanted to reflect on or, or call out? Yeah, I think I think the thing for me that really sort of stopped me in my tracks and thought, oh, I recognize that was when she talked about leader role modeling and the importance of leaders in demonstrating um, and embracing failure and seeing it positively. And I just think about all the times that I've worked with teams and the managers or leaders of those teams or even the organizations have absolutely wanted to foster and embrace innovation. But when they've invested time and energy into something and it's gone wrong, they haven't been able to hide their disappointment and their frustration. And that instantly creates an environment of failure is wrong and bad, and it should be sort of shrunk back and we should like push it under a carpet rather than sort of embrace it and indulge in it and revel in it such that we can find the learning. Yeah, there was a phrase that I used to hear, which was that failure is an orphan, but success is a million parents. I don't know if you've heard that, but it just kind of sums up the way that a lot of us approach this and, and, and sort of, to me, sums up some of the challenges around it. And I think that's... That's really difficult. Um, one of the things that stood out for me in this conversation was just a, a little snapshot to do with the time it takes to really do things and make things better. And it, it feels like we don't always appreciate or understand or, or make time for a non-linear path to an outcome that we're aiming for. So, it, so how we can shape our expectations around our sort of direction process and where we're heading to seems important. And, you know, one of the, one of the examples that she raised when, you know, failures create secondary success through the post-it note example, I thought was really interesting. And, and how do you, how do you lead and structure so that you give people space for that time and that creativity um, and maintain that fluidity to, to respond to changing things? I just think there's some really interesting stuff in there. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting episode. Looking forward to, uh, to the next one as well, because for those of you who aren't, aren't aware, we've actually recorded a couple more episodes with uh, our same guest. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Hi, thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you. Thank you.